I think one of the things that I struggle with when it comes to creating creative briefs or pulling out those insights and, you know, connecting all the dots between um, all the, the data and the anecdotes that I have is I hesitate to speak for an audience. And I think that can get in the way of getting to that insight. What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Esther Wang, a strategist from Seattle today. Welcome, Esther. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. We are going to talk about creative briefs. We were having a chat in a Sweathead happy hour the other day talking about this topic. And I thought it'd be interesting to try something a little bit different, which is basically to try to replicate some of that dynamic where we're both going to ask each other questions and try Mm -hmm. to talk about the creative brief. Okay. But we're going to lead with your question. So what Mm -hmm. was the question that was most on your mind? So the question that I had was, what are the components of a solid creative brief? Or what? how do you create a solid creative brief? Mm-hmm. And do you write creative briefs yourself now? Um, yes, I do. Okay. So first place to start, I think one of the first places to start is who's the audience of a creative brief? The creative team. Okay. And have you spoken to them about what they think makes a good creative brief? I have. And what have they said makes a good creative brief? So what I have been hearing is the distillation, the less is more is really important. They really gravitate towards simpler briefs, right? Because when you're digging through the mess and you're you know looking at all of these different data points and collecting all of these different anecdotes, you find the common thread or you find the one thing that they need to know to get there. And I think one of the frustrations I've been hearing is how they feel like they have to wade through briefs and it's difficult to, to go back and reference them and uh, really understand where, where they need to go. So I think that's the biggest thing that I've heard from them. Okay. And if you were to describe the characteristics of a creative brief that they had to wade through, what comes to mind? What are the characteristics of a brief like that? I guess length is an easy one. Like if you're going through 60 slides or, you know, whatever, whatever the format is in or 50 pages or whatever, then I can imagine it would be difficult. Um, I've written a couple of briefs that were definitely longer. And even when I went back and referenced them, I had a hard time picking out what they needed to know, what was most important, which was when I started to realize, ah, I began to understand, oh, yep, when there's a lot it's really hard to grab onto what is that one thing that I need to do. Okay, so there's a lot, a lot of stuff which could come through in the number of slides, the number of words, the number of facts, number yeah. of data. Any, any, is there anything else that makes a creative brief more like one you have to wade through rather than one that's immediately useful? I want to say a brief that has been rushed through, like a brief that hasn't been thought through because the more you think about something, the more you refine something in my mind you're not there yet when it's still messy, when there's still a lot of things, if that makes sense. Yeah. But that's hard, right? Because you have deadlines and whatnot. And so sometimes that's just what it is. <laughs> Say that again. What makes it hard to write a short brief? A lack of time. <laughs> is that what you just said? Yep. Deadlines? Yeah. <laughs> too many yes. briefs, too little time? Interesting. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. as well you get paid by the minute when you're writing creative briefs, right? Or not. Actually, it's the opposite of that. Uh, you mentioned distillation and you're relatively new to the strategy world. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by distillation? Uh, I keep going back to the whole less is more. When you are able to succinctly say something in a sentence or a short 
phrase, you truly understand what's happening. You truly understand what the heart is. And that is one of the things that I struggle with the most. I think one of the things we had sort of talked about during the the meet and greet was how I was rushing to get to the end instead of digesting and processing and thinking through and throwing throwing things out there. And I think that the process of distillation can't be rushed, right? Like you need to have that time. You have to be able to juggle all the things in your head and then come out the other end, but there's no substitute for time. And I know that as I become more familiar and gain more experience that certain things will speed up, but at the end of the day, time is really important. I mean, you talked about distillation being something you can say in a phrase or a sentence and that you were rushing to get to the end, which I assume means that you were rushing to get through all the information rather than any distillation of the information. So sometimes when we talk about not having enough time, which could be very true, I know a lot of people are under pressure right now and some people are having to churn out more briefs that cater to more media channels than ever before with not a, not a lot of time, right? I get it. I get it. But also sometimes we're not spending time in the right places. That Sometimes we are just merchants in information and numbers and hoping that we can inform and be right, but inform our way to something that can help a creative team when they might actually only need a phrase or two, right? So mm-hmm. sometimes it is that we don't have enough time and sometimes it's just because we're not sure how to use the time that we've got to do the most important thing, the thing that will help other people. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about rushing to get to the end, what do you, what do you mean? Rushing to get to the end of what? Uh, to get to the insight. I wonder if a better way to describe distillation is a deeper understanding, right? Because you're connecting all the dots, you're looking at all these different pieces of information and you're finding the through line or the double click in. But there's something about distillation that conveys that you understand what's happening and you see and you see the different in to get there yeah potentially i mean in many strategy presentations the insight might be i'm going to make this up it might be halfway through so if you're rushing to get to an insight which is a distillation because it's usually a phrase or a sentence what are you Mm -hmm. rushing through to get to the insight what's all the stuff before it i think part of it is the fear of not getting there at all because the process is messy there's no you know there's no one right way to do it and I think innately there's this fear of what if I can't find a good insight? What if I don't even get to that point? What if I look at these different pieces of information and I can't connect the dots because we can't start this process until we get to that insight? Okay. But help me understand this because, and I just think I'm trying to ask you questions that I think a lot of people have on their minds. And I think what you're talking about is something that's really common, right? And mm-hmm. that I think if you've, you know, if you've had tertiary education or any kind of, any kind of education, there, there is a big shift where you go from having all the information, having that word count to fill in to all of a sudden, mm-hmm. maybe it's a word or three words or this thing someone said in this interview that is the thing that the next six months of your professional life or maybe more could be based around, right? There's that shift, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, you're saying that you have struggled with distillation and yet an insight is a distillation. So does that mean that your insights are really, really long and not distillations of anything? No, I would say the insights that I write, I try to stick to one sentence or less. Try to. Okay. Okay. So you talk about the creative team saying a creative brief involves distillation and you're saying that you're good at distillation or that you just do distillation? (laughs) Um, Probably the latter. I'm hesitating because 
of my lack of experience. I don't believe that I'm good at it yet. I'm doing it. I'm going through the process. I'm getting those insights. I'm pulling together those creative briefs. So no, I wouldn't say I'm good at it, but I am trying. Okay. How would you describe the problem that you're trying to solve for yourself individually then, right? Because I'm, I'm hearing a variety of things. First of all, good initiative to ask your audience of the creative brief what they need. Like that's an initiative mm-hmm. that not enough people take. They're nervous about that kind of interaction. So that should be applauded. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm hearing sort of two things that are, I don't know, maybe in conflict, that you're doing distillation but that a good creative brief involves distillation. So if that's if both those things are true, why are we talking about the need to improve creative briefs? So like, what, what do you think is letting you down with your creative briefs? Honestly, I think it might just be a personal drive to do better, to get better. Yeah, I accept that. And I also think that part of that drive is wanting to be a good partner to creatives because they make magic happen. Mm-hmm. Have you had moments where you've received feedback or noticed that what you've written has not been usable or useful by the creative team? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, there have been times where kicked off the creative team, thrown the brief over, and then you know a couple of weeks down the road realized that they don't look back at it. They don't use it. It's not usable for them. And so I actually messaged one of them. I was like, hey, I'm getting the sense that this is not something you reference back to. This isn't something that you are using. And they were very candid. They were like, yeah, we don't. (laughs) We uh, did not find this particular one that useful, but we'll make it work. And I'd like to think that my posture is geared towards learning versus being offended or being, you know, upset about that kind of thing. And so I took it in stride and I was like, okay, you don't use it. Why don't you use it? And then we had, have been having conversations around like, oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a lot of stuff in there. The insight isn't really an insight. Like it doesn't make any impact or the insight doesn't uh, have this emotional pull that we're looking for. There isn't anything there for us to react to, to be inspired by. And I was like, ah, okay, okay, okay. And so part of what I have been trying to do is cut down on the fluff to think more deeply about the things that I'm putting in a creative brief and also working on creating insights that are inspiring versus informing. This makes sense. Uh, And also like your behavior as someone who's relatively new to the industry, you have a multiplier effect available to you. If you spend Mm -hmm. the next 10, 20 years doing what you're doing, which is like, that's not working. How do I fix it? I'm going to talk to them. Okay, we're going to fix it. Is this fixed? What else can we improve? That's Mm -hmm. how you improve really quickly. Really, really mm. quickly. Um, I hope so. that's so. amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it is. And also, first of all, it takes initiative and it takes bravery and it takes vulnerability. Uh, but also, as someone who's relatively recent to the industry, you're getting to write creative briefs. And it sounds mm. like there's quite a few of them. So you have like creative brief flow in the way that VC, venture capital companies, sometimes get deal flow. Like being mm. famous means more people come to you to be like, hey, will you invest in us? And these are these are things that I think are really important in the early years of a strategy career to try to be mm. frontline as mm-hmm. much as possible and to have a lot of creative briefs coming through while also acknowledging that we can, I don't know, over-dramatize the creative brief. It, it, it's, it's just an important art. It's an important artifact. We'd be lying if we were like, <laughs> oh, creative, creative briefs are really, and briefings, it's just conversations, you know, at some point you need to kind of get your thoughts down. Um, Talk to me about going from informing to inspiring insights. What does that feel like, sound like? How do you do that? Oh, well, 
I think I'll work backwards. So when it comes to inspiring, I feel like an insight that is inspiring garners an immediate reaction, some sort of emotional reaction, some sort like it sets off, it starts the the chain. And I think that's crucial to the storytelling aspect of it, I want to say. Yeah, so immediate reaction. And confusion is a legitimate immediate reaction as long as that confusion resolves in something that's clear. Mm-hmm. How do you know when there's a, an immediate reaction? Well, the creative team will tell me. <laughs> They'll say something like, oh, that's interesting. Like, are you thinking about it like this? Are you thinking about it like that? It prompts, it prompts questions. It prompts ideas right off the bat. Actually, that's not fair because some people take a minute to process. I'm one of those people. So I guess it's not fair to say, oh, they'll you know react in the moment or whatever. But at least in the moment or down the road, as they're thinking about it, they'll have more questions. They'll shoot ideas over and be like, is this what you were thinking? Or is it more like this? Or like, what if we thought about it like this? Or what if it sounded like this? What if it looked like this? Yeah. So I guess it's the, it's the spark that gets the creative juices flowing. Yeah, but I think even um, I, I appreciate that sort of fancy language. But what they're doing is like they're engaging with it. You know, they're like, okay, mm-hmm. I will take that thing that you've put in front of me, and I won't ignore it. First of all, I won't run mm-hmm. away from it. I'll actually engage with it and think about it and play with it. So mm-hmm. that is a behavior that I think is really important to acknowledge and to look for. And then the fact that they're sharing things back with you, how does that actually happen? Are they coming up with ideas or are they almost rewriting the insight? I think it's a number of things. Sometimes they're, sometimes they're taking it apart. Sometimes they're playing with um, the tension or the bridge in the insight. Sometimes they just want to know more context around it. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's they look at it and go, but what if we thought about it this way or a slightly different way? What if we pivoted like two degrees? What would that do? Okay. I dig it. I dig it. I think the challenge with the question, how do you write a good or an inspiring creative brief is that that question is asking so many other questions at the one time because (laughs) a creative brief template, it brings to life the, hopefully brings to life the philosophy of the group of people that are writing it, creating it. Mm -hmm. And the creative brief template also often brings to life in some ways, the, the way that people work with each other as well so Mm -hmm. to ask how do you write a good creative brief is like asking a lot of really big and difficult questions Mm -hmm. so to talk about what a good creative brief is means that you have to ask who the audience of the creative brief is we know who that is in your particular case it's the creative team it also Mm -hmm. means you need to ask what the philosophy of the agency is so you know what what does the agency make and what do they believe in an agency that believes in making famous ideas might have a slightly different creative brief or a very different creative brief to an agency that is all about problem solving, right? Mm -hmm. And then the challenge for a lot of people is when the agency or the company doesn't actually have a stated point of view on what on earth they're doing with each other. That, That can be really confusing because then the creative brief exists as this symptom of conversations that are yet to be had where the main conversation is, what are we doing here and how do we know if we're going to be successful? Mm-hmm. Then there can be a little bit of a, uh, a, a cultural comfort around awkward and difficult and unconventional truths and thinking versus mm-hmm. creative briefs that are just easy to agree with. You've got your numbers mm-hmm. there. We're going to say something nice. We're not going to be too challenging of ourselves or of the client. And so there's just so many ways for this stuff to come to life. But let's mm-hmm. talk through a specific example because, you know, if you've done this for a little bit of time, you know that a creative brief hangs on 
one to maybe three sentences, right? Mm. Um, one of the examples that we were talking about the other day was involving or involves teachers and just hypothetically selling them some kind of new and crazy effective online learning system and curriculum. Okay, so let's mm. talk about them a little bit. Now, mm. you've, you've worked in the space and you've been around research involving teachers. Let's talk about what they're feeling right now. When you think about that research, what are they saying? What are they reporting about their feelings right now, especially in regards to, well, teaching and online learning? They're keenly aware of the fact that they are being asked to do more with less. I think even outside of the pandemic, that has always been the case. But especially this year and last year, that squeeze is prevalent, is is very top of mind for them. And then there's all the there's all the fallout from that, right? So they're exhausted. They don't have enough time in the day. They're concerned about having enough time with their students because they're so busy planning the curricula, making sure that they're hitting all the bases, covering both in-person, online, hybrid, depending on what uh, their district is doing or what their their school is doing. Yeah, there's just this overall heaviness, I would say, but they keep going because there's a bigger vision, right? It takes a very specific type of person to want to go into teaching. They're there for the kids. They're there because they come alive when the, the kid gets it, when there's that aha moment. They're really there for, for the kids, not for themselves. And that colors their job in its entirety. If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books, and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter-funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes, and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. Yeah. So if we focus on the first half of what you were talking about, what you were doing is listing problems or potentially symptoms of problems that they're facing. Mm Asked to do more with less. They're exhausted. There's not enough time. They're busy planning. There's a sense of heaviness. Mm -hmm. And I think when we think about the word distillation, what you might do there is when we're trying to identify the problem to solve is look at that list of symptoms and then summarize the problem in a phrase or a sentence, right? Where Mm -hmm. my brain goes to the word teacher or teaching And I want to argue back with it, you know, where you might say, it's as if they're not teachers anymore, they're dot, 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 you know, Mm. because so much of their time is in preparation and logistics and project management, in learning new management systems and making sure the kids have cameras on or whatever their rules are, blah, 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 blah. So Mm -hmm. the problem statement, I think at the very least can involve a little bit of a leap, Mm -hmm. uh, some faith in words, uh, an idea, bringing two topics together that don't usually belong together. And I think it's interesting in that that can be the problem statement can be something that strategy folk resist initially until they realize they're going to make a bit of a creative leap where they might have all their statistics. They've done a survey. They've got research from news websites and they've spoken Mm -hmm. to 20 people, 20 teachers, their students. And at some point they just need a sentence that's like, here's the problem that we need to solve. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put you back on the spot. (laughs) How might you articulate the main problem that they need to solve? Mm-hmm. And if you want a Mad Lib, if you want to play with me, and I'll give you a Mad Lib just to make it easier because we haven't worked together, right? Sure. Um, teachers aren't teaching anymore. There, dot, dot, dot. What might you say in the dot, dot, dot? Um, teachers are planning, dealing with logistics. They're coordinating. I state the obvious, obvious. They're not spending as much time teaching as they want to be. They're not interacting with their students as much as they want to be. 
Yeah, we're nearly there. We're just we're looking for a word or a phrase that is visual. That's like, oh, that's exactly what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. So the word, uh, like I've I've used this recently and I've used it before, but teachers aren't teachers anymore; they're bureaucrats. You know, just mm-hmm. what I'm what I'm going for there, and and um, this is not an uncommon approach to writing in general. Is foc- I'm focusing on the noun, mm-hmm. you know, teachers versus bureaucrats. Bureaucrats, not teachers. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. looking at two nouns what's going on there could you think of an alternative to bureaucrats if that's not correct or interesting another noun that might summarize their existence Mm, question back to you to help me process if like define bureaucrat in a sentence and then i'm going to pull from that well yeah thank you for that question uh someone who moves a lot of paper around who's caught up in running a system rather than creating useful things rather than making an impact they're trying to satisfy a system behind the scenes that mm-hmm. might or might not really be the best way for them to do what they think they live to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something right. like that. Yeah, Went yeah, better. yeah. So, right, right. So, like, a lot of busy work, a lot of additional responsibility, a lot of – so what I'm, what I'm sort of circling around, it's they're doing all the things that may or may not be a necessary part of their job – but it's not why they're here. So yeah, your question, yeah. yeah so your question was, what's another word? Huh, administrator comes to mind, but I know that's not in this context. Yeah, that doesn't fine. make sense. That's fine. There's also the the uh, I'm going to use a big word paradox between spending a lot of hours being a teacher but not teaching full time. So there's almost like part time teacher versus full time teacher. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly what the the language is. I'm just trying to show some techniques which focus on immediately bringing in in this case a couple of nouns Mm -hmm. and then adjective in front of noun two sets together that show immediate not not necessarily opposites but there's the world that i thought it was i'm a full-time teacher i'm working 60 to 80 hours a week Mm -hmm. but deep down i'm i know i'm not teaching how i want to teach or in the full-bodied way that i want to teach i I don't even feel like a full teacher anymore i I don't i don't know what the research would have suggested and there's mm-hmm. something interesting about, for me, as a problem to solve, and we're not talking yet about their attitudes towards what we're selling, right? So I'm being a little slippery with the word problem right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because I don't know the product that we're actually selling. But something about, like, I've never worked more hours than ever to not be a teacher. So there's something in, mm-hmm. in there, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. as a problem for this product to potentially solve. But again, mm-hmm. I'm using the word problem in a a different way than the way that I often use it, which is where the problem is the barrier or the obstacle in their mind as for as to why they're not using something. But can you feel, because you talked about informing versus inspiring insights, and this is a dark one, it's not necessarily inspiring, but if you're hearing from people that they've never worked longer, more hours than before, mm-hmm. but more than ever what they're doing isn't actually teaching, Mm-hmm. Then we're just looking for a way to summarize that because that that sounds pain that sounds painful and it's not that we're selling pain but often mm-hmm. our communication will sell a problem which will sell some kind of pain. I'm not into selling shame, but <laughs> there might be a pain that we're like, hey, well, we can fix that with this product, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and the first step in that situation would be to try to get the teacher to recognize that in themselves, possibly through us labeling it, giving it language, giving mm-hmm. it words. Mm-hmm. what lab- labeling is mm-hmm. how would you paraphrase what i'm saying is any of this useful does it make sense yes yes i i'm i'm resonating with a lot of what you're talking about like i there's not a specific example that comes to mind but i i remember whenever i would see a good ad my reaction would be huh 
that's exactly what it is. Like, right, the, the ad starts off with the problem or like the situation, like it gives what you're talking about. It, it gives language, it gives context around what's happening. And it almost pulls you outside of yourself for a second. And you take a step back and you look at it and you go, huh, that's exactly what it is. And now you have my attention. What do we do about it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that concept of laying a, laying a trap. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but a mental trap for someone to be like, ooh, I identify with the problem. That problem already helps me see myself and my world a little bit differently. Tell me more. That's kind of what's going on. Now, mm-hmm. if and, and we do that through language, and the language will suggest different categories to break the world up into. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. let's say even if we play with part-time teacher versus full-time teacher versus overtime teacher, mm-hmm. just those three categories, and I don't know where this sits on a creative brief. <laughs> Because mm-hmm. in, a, in a way, we're actually doing the strategy. And I don't know what the problem is <laughs> that we're trying to solve yet. Yeah. There's, a, there's a way that those, those three categories could relate to a strategy. Okay, mm-hmm. so you take part-time teacher, full-time teacher, overtime teacher. Perhaps mm-hmm. one strategy is to talk to teachers who feel they're working overtime to say, hey, with our product, you can become a full-time teacher again. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, you can get rid of, a lot of the administration, get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy because our system's set up for it, get mm-hmm. back to being a full-time teacher. And yeah, get back to teaching. Uh-huh. Get, yeah. yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, get back to teaching, get back to being a full-time teacher. Mm-hmm. And they're slightly different but, but connected. That's one way to play with those three categories. Mm-hmm. Can you think of another way to play with those three categories? Let's call it strategy. <laughs> sure. My brain goes the other way in terms of part-time teacher because we talked about how it feels like they're not doing the stuff that they want to be doing, which is teaching, interacting with the kids. And that's actually where my brain goes, where it's like, well, so now you're a part-time teacher. You're only teaching part of the time versus full-time teaching, um, which is where we want to go back to. So I think I went the opposite way, but my brain is screaming at me like, what if it's wrong? What if that's not a good idea? Yeah, yeah. But the goal is, and one of the ways I think through this, especially when you're newish is just to give yourself a goal of having a certain number of strategies right Mm -hmm. so that if you're if your brain's circling these kinds of categories this kind of language part-time teacher full-time teacher overtime teacher Mm -hmm. you might say i'm going to come up with five ways to play with this language one of them could be to acknowledge that they've become part-time teachers again because they're spending the rest of their lives doing all this bureaucracy and we're going to turn them back into full-time teachers second Mm -hmm. could be you're now working like Overtime and overtime is probably not even the right word and not dramatic enough. You're mm-hmm. working overtime. Why don't you go back to being a full time teacher again? Mm-hmm. Slightly similar, but a little different, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. then you might go, what, what are another three ways? And I'm nervous about doing this immediately right now, just in case we don't make any sense. I think some of yeah. this makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I'm nervous about going, let's do the three right now. I know. I, <laughs> I was a little scared you were going to ask that. <laughs> Yeah, but but I, I think the techniques that I just want to sort of bring to mind are really focusing sometimes on the nouns. It's not X, it's Y. So teachers aren't mm-hmm. teaching, they're coordinating or they're now bureaucrats or they're now administrators, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. then, and then thinking, okay, what are other ways to talk about that? So that got us into the part-time teacher versus full-time teacher versus overtime teacher. And maybe mm-hmm. there are other categories to, to play with there that have something to do with time you know, sometime teacher. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, and, w- and once we have those categories, then we think about what the product does. And if the product gets rid of all of that administration, mm-hmm. then perhaps we go like, 
we could talk about instead of being a part-time teacher, a full-time teacher, instead of being a sometime teacher, you're a full-time teacher. Instead of mm-hmm. being an overtime teacher, you go back to being a full-time teacher. I don't know what mm-hmm. it is, but we get, mm-hmm. we get the options in some, t- in some kind of mind map. And then we start to play with the language a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. This is not on topic at all, but I think one of the things that I struggle with when it comes to creating creative briefs or pulling out those insights and, you know, connecting all the dots between, um, all the the data and the anecdotes that I have is I hesitate to speak for an audience. And I think that can get in the way of getting to that insight. Yeah, to keep going, I want to hear more about this because I think there's something noble about hesitating to speak for an audience, right? I think it's- <laughs> Hardly, I don't, I don't think no, it's noble. No, I, I think it's good self-awareness that you mm-hmm. are not the audience in most situations uh, mm-hmm. at, at work. But at the same time, you are the channel for that audience. Mm -hmm. So those two things go together. You're not them, but you're the channel for them. And people want you to represent the things you found out about them, which is to give them a sense of voice and a sense of agency in the agency Um, to not not judge them. I think that's a a really risky thing that I I see with people who are new at a strategy that sometimes Mm -hmm. they're like, I would never do that. Or they're writing a creative brief to affect an audience that they don't like. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that they don't like that audience, and that's mm-hmm. that's a, that's not a good place to be. Yeah, you got to maintain that that empathy, but also while acknowledging that you are not them because you're not in most situations. So when when you feel that you're hesitating to speak for the audience, what mm-hmm. kind of behavior does that lead to for you? Well, usually my first instinct is go back and look at the things. Right. Go go back and look at all the information that you've compiled. Go back and um, go to the interviews that you've done. Sometimes I'll go as far as to reach out to the person again and be like, hey, so if I were to sum this up as X, Y, Z, does that feel right? Like, does that does that do you justice? But I'm also aware that you can't always do that. You, you don't always have access to interviews and, you know, that kind of qualitative data. But I guess my strongest instinct would be to go back to the audience and ask them, does this feel right? Does this sound right? Am I representing you correctly? But then, like I said, there's also a fear of, okay, so if you, if you can't do that, then where do you go? And then I start to lean more into the psychology of things. And I am by no means a psychology expert, but I think it's important to go back to basics, right? Like when you're overwhelmed, what do you feel? When you're tired, what do people do? Because the these are things that we know to be true as humans. No, but you you got good instincts there, which is to you want to have a thing to point at someone else's opinion to point at. The, the challenge is always like when we ask people opinions about the things we're thinking before mm-hmm. we've communicated with them, how real is that signal? You might ask someone and they want to please you. There's often pleasing mm-hmm. in interviewing dynamics where they don't want to disagree with you. Someone might be contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian. So how useful is that? Uh, it, uh, it's a hard thing, you know, to wrestle with. There is always going to be subjective subjectivity in the work that we do, even if you have some kind of quantitative pre-testing, mm-hmm. um, which horrifies a lot of us. But even if you have quantitative pre-testing, there's still loads of subjectivity that got you to the work that's getting pre-tested mm-hmm. uh, so it's you know these systems are, are imperfect which kind of makes them fun as well as far as i'm concerned yeah now that i'm thinking about it i think the the behavior since your question was you know what kind of behaviors does that induce a lot of spinning not gonna lie a lot of going around and around and around and around and then you finally get to a point where 
you realize, okay, I need to take a step back. I need to take a minute, come back to it, look at it with fresh eyes, and then go from there. Are you aware of the things that you do when you come back to it after taking a step back? Because I'll tell you, like, I focus on a word. I'll go for a walk or a sleep. I'll go for a sleep, I'll go for a walk. Yeah. And I'll be like, what's the one word? What's the one word that I can't get out of my head? So for this right now, I don't think we've necessarily made sense of this brief yet, but my head would riff through part time, full time, overtime, extra time, some time. And I'd, I'd be riffing through words involving the word time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, is there something in that that a teacher might? see in themselves Mm -hmm. but that we can use possibly new novel language for so that they see it in a more dramatic and a more immediate way so that's Mm -hmm. all i would do i'd riff and riff and riff and then eventually give myself another word to spend and then another word and then i'd question Mm -hmm. those words Mm -hmm. so i do it kind of word by word literally interesting so for better or for worse i rely on like a subconscious stream of thought where I'll go work on something else. I'll completely ignore it. I'll put it in the back of my head. I'll let, you know, the subconscious mind or whatever you want to call it, run it through the back of my head. And then after I get to a point where like, okay, I feel like I'm ready to come back to this. I'll go back and usually something will pop up. And I know that's not, uh, that's very vague (laughs) and there's no, you know, step-by-step of how that works, but I don't know, just switching gears and letting my brain do its thing. Yeah, totally. totally. I mean, the step-by-step is what you do. You get distracted, you do something else, you sleep, you whatever oh yeah the there you go thing and then, yeah and then you come back to it so you, you just described it step by step which is funny. <laughs> yeah very cool yeah what i'm wondering is if by way of ending we could kind of plot that the simple steps of evolution in the first few years of being an account planner or strategist as mm. felt through the creative brief so for, for instance perhaps phase one is you go through this phase that we've probably all been through where we're collecting a lot of information and we're nervous that we don't have the right information or enough mm-hmm. of the information or that the information mm-hmm. is not usable. Let's assume totally. that's phase one. How yeah. would you describe phase two? Let's try to get to three, but how would you describe phase two? Honestly, phase two for me was realizing that I should just go to the source and ask them, what are they looking for? To give myself a, a framework of sorts, I guess, like getting, getting outside of my head, being more cognizant of, okay, yes, I'm writing this thing, but like with all communication, if it doesn't make sense to the person that you are talking to, then it's useless, right? It's, it's a moot point. So I'd say like that, that is part of phase two. I think it's hard for me to articulate because I feel like I'm, I'm in it right now and hindsight is always twenty twenty, And so it's difficult to step outside of yourself and be like, huh, like what is, what, what is the thing that I'm doing right now? You know? That's why I wanted to talk to you. That's why I wanted to talk to you. So phase one is fetching information and, and phase two is going to the source. Phase three is probably going to have something to do with distillation that you mentioned earlier, right? That mm. that you've got a lot of information, that you mm. feel that it's rooted in, in truth. And then three is this the leap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Or even just, I don't know if this is the right way to say this, but honing in on those instincts or maybe, maybe it's more about trusting your gut of like, oh, these two things are connected or, oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Or going back to basics as humans, like, here's how I would react. Here's how anybody would react. Here's where the tension is. Here's where the real problem is. I'll let you know when I get there. Okay. But you, I mean, you, I feel like you've already laid it out for us in that perhaps at least for you, phase three is letting, letting the emotion back in, you mm-hmm. know, because maybe mm-hmm. phase two going to the source, there's still 
maybe they're still in that phase of bias towards information. And over time, and as you um, mature, and I don't mean that in a patronizing way, just as you get older (laughs) and you do more of this work, you start Mm -hmm. to sniff more, not just for the information, but the emotion in the information, one. Mm -hmm. And then two, you allow your own emotions to guide your own writing, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. that's what's going on there. That makes sense. Mm. No, yeah, I think you're right because we talked about how I – I'm, I'm so hesitant to speak for an audience. I'm so hesitant to speak about the people that we're targeting, the people that we, you know, will be talking to in campaigns or whatnot, because it's, I don't know, <laughs> I think it's important not to assume other people's emotions. You're right. You're right. I mean, it's hard enough sometimes for us to use or find the words for our own emotions, let alone working out what other people are, th- are thinking. But mm-hmm. I think those three phases of evolution, and I, I think there's another f- few, but I, that all makes sense to me. Um, Airstar, thank you so much for allowing me to chat with you about creating briefs. I kind of wanted to, I wanted to get you at this phase of your career because it's a phase of a career that so many people are in right now and Mm -hmm. they don't always have people around them that they can get language from or get structure from. They don't Mm -hmm. always have creative teams who they can interact with in the way that you're interacting with people. They Mm -hmm. don't always get time on projects to find useful research, right? And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to to sort of grab you in this, maybe it is the third phase out of seven or infinite <laughs> phases that exist out there to, to, to hear your thoughts. Um, last question. What, ex- what excites you most about the strategy career? Ooh. Um, oh, this is funny. I was just talking uh, about this to, to somebody else. I really, really like working with the creative team. And I don't know if I have all the language around it, but I love, I love the interaction. I love the engaging. I love the questions. I love the back and forth. I love that, oh, what about this? What about that? What about this? Um, there's just something really intimate about that that I think is really appealing to me. But also I am always so attracted to creative minds. And uh, I mean, not saying that strategy can't be creative and creative can't be strategic, blah, 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 blah. But there's something about the way that they pull things together and the way that they create that fascinates me. And if I can't be with them, I at least want to work with them and be a really good partner and see that process come to life. I think it's spectacular. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that with me. If people want to track you down on the internet, are you active anywhere? Where can they find you? I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> which is, there, you go. Just, there you go. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me under my name, Esther Wang. Awesome. Thank you for joining me on Sweathead today, Esther. I hope you have a beautiful career. Thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to be messy and vulnerable and it's been a great time anytime it's the best part of life peace thank you for listening to this episode of sweathead if it's your first time here please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating for more information about our strategy classes events and books visit www.sweathead.com and yes you can find us on instagram at at sweathead sweathead